Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease podcast where we talk to smart people but not necessarily done by smart people that is an awesome question this one goes down probably on one of my top five hey i like nutrition i like to eat food this is the coolest thing ever we're gonna do this forever i wish i paid more attention in that class you know i'm gonna be honest i don't understand that as a man i just i don't get it welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com Hello, welcome to Smart People Podcast. Hope you are enjoying your Memorial Day. If you're listening to this on Monday, and if you're in the United States, if not, I just hope you're enjoying your day and your week. This episode is one of those episodes that I wish I could share with even more people. Although we reach about 15,000 or more people every week across the globe, I wish that number was double, triple, 10x that Really, just so they could hear this. I don't know. You tell me if I'm crazy after listening to it. But this was one of my favorite episodes. It was just getting back to the core of talking to somebody with experience in an interesting field that I kind of don't really know about and seeing what comes out of it. So I'm going to ask you, try to spread the word on this one. If you have a Twitter account, just tweet about it. Email a friend. Tell somebody in the elevator. It doesn't have to be a huge sell. I just really hope more people can enjoy this on the commute or walking the dog, whatever you might be doing. Cleaning. We got an email from somebody who said, you make cleaning so much easier. So that's enough talking. Let's get in with this week. We talked to Michael Uslan. Now, you might know him. And if you do, you're definitely going to enjoy this episode. But if you don't, I can almost guarantee that he has been part of either your childhood your child's childhood, or perhaps even your adulthood. Michael owns the rights to Batman. 
Years and years ago, he purchased the rights of Batman from DC Comics at what was probably a steal, but still a little bit expensive, and went on to turn it into the Batman movie, Batman 89. He's executive producer of all of the Batman feature films from Batman to The Dark Knight Rises, and he won an Emmy Award for TV's Where on Earth is Carmen Sandiego. He's a film producer with numerous award-winning projects to his credit, and he has been a speaker at New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art and at the Smithsonian Institution. One of the reasons Michael was willing to come onto the show is because he wanted to let everybody know about his project that he's doing with the Smithsonian Institution and Stan Lee. They've all teamed up to create a free online course titled The Rise of Superheroes. And if you go to smartpeoplepodcast.com, we link to that course, which is free. You know, people have dubbed Michael the godfather of comic book movies because really, comic book movies were not a thing until Batman 89 came out. Now, when you look around, there's the Avengers and Iron Man, Fantastic Four, Incredible Hulk, Batman, Superman, Spider-Man. It's common these days. And thanks to Michael's insight, that is the case. And we can all go enjoy him on the big screen as well as good old-fashioned comic books. This episode is a meandering conversation that talks about passion all the way to what it's like to be the first instructor to teach an accredited course on comic book folklore at any university. And of course, we spend a great deal of time talking about Batman, superheroes, what it was like to film The Dark Knight. I could go on and on, but instead, I'm going to let the interview go on and on Make sure to reach out to us. We are at Smart People Pod on Twitter, and you can find us at smartpeoplepodcast.com where you can sign up for the newsletter and make sure you never miss an episode, as well as some additional inside looks at what we do here at Smart People Podcast. Here it is, an interview with Michael Uslan. Hope you enjoy. All right, Michael, well, thank you so much for taking time out of, I know, what is a busy schedule for you and being on the show. Um, I'm really excited because we haven't talked to anyone about movies or producing really in that genre. So I'm, I'm excited to have you on. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. You know, I am not some Hollywood guy or some corporate guy who got into this. I am a fanboy from the earliest days. Um, you know, my mom said I learned to read before I was four from comic books. Started collecting them avidly thanks to my older brother, Paul, uh, by the time I was five. And by the time I graduated high school, I had over 30,000 comic books that filled my dad's entire garage. He never got his car into the garage. <laughs> um, dating back to 1936, I was at the first Comic-Con ever held on the planet Earth when I was 13 years old. 200 of us showed up for that one. Wow. Um, so I have been a, um, a fan from day one. And to now be producing movies and cartoons and TV and all kinds of stuff, dealing with what I love so much and what I'm so passionate about has been my life's dream come true. You know, I have to ask you this, and some people are going to be like, Chris, that's such a cliche question, but you are the epitome of like taking the idea of what you enjoyed as a child and turning it into a career. How did you do that? And how do you recommend anyone else do that with a passion that's such a niche as comic books? You know, Stan Lee has taught me the art of the unabashed plug. So if I can, let me mention, I have written my autobiography in a book published by Chronicle Books. It's called The Boy Who Loved Batman. And it, it details my journey from fanboy 
to Hollywood. And the steps that I took, because what you have to understand about me is the following. I didn't know anybody in Hollywood. I didn't have any relatives in Hollywood. I didn't come from money. My, my father was a stonemason and my mom was a bookkeeper. So I couldn't buy my way into Hollywood. So the question always becomes, how do you get there from here? I mean, really, what do you do when you continually door slam in your face? And I do a lot of lecturing now uh, around the country and internationally. I've spoken at lots and lots of universities and at comic book conventions. And my message is pretty simple. Figure out, explore, learn what your passion is in life. And when you're young enough, it's great to go down wrong turns. Uh, because you gain something important every time you learn what you don't love as well as what you do love. But once you find the passion and it's coursing through your blood, then what you can't do is what I see too much of uh, for the last two generations. I have seen up front people who sit back on their couch thinking the world owes them something. It's some misguided sense of entitlement that the world is going to come to them. And what I say to you is get up off the damn couch. Make something happen. Be proactive. If you've got this passion, get out there and start doing something about it. What I found in all my travels and this journey through this life of mine is that truly only maybe 10% of the people will do that. So if you're one of the 10% that will do that, your chance of success just ratcheted up from one out of 100 to one in 10. And it's unbelievable how your odds increase at that particular point in time. So you're talking to a guy who, you know, works six, seven days a week. My typical work days would be anywhere from 12 to 20 hours. I'm, in, I'm on planes all the time. And if I wasn't doing something that I absolutely love and am passionate about, you would find me today locked up in a dark corner in a straitjacket. <laughs> but the fact that I love what I'm doing, my work is not really my work. It, it, it's just what I love. Uh, that's what you need. That's what my dad had as a stonemason. My dad loved what he did. He was an old world artist. He's a craftsman and made these beautiful fireplaces and homes out of brick and stone and mortar and marble. And he worked six days a week his entire life from age 16 to 80 got up out of bed before dawn every morning, big smile on his face, couldn't wait to get to work. And when you grow up in a house with someone like that, how can you not want that for yourself? Yeah. The key is, the key I learned, I had to figure out what my bricks and stones were. And my bricks and stones were comic books, Batman, history. I'm a huge history buff. I like to incorporate history into my writing and some of my work. And, um, and that's what's done it for me. Well, what was it about comic books that always stuck with you? I mean, you know, I think all kids have their thing, whether it be comic books or sports or music, but oftentimes that fades away, especially if it's something as, and I, I don't mean this in the derogatory, but kind of nerdy as comic books. So how did you just say, this is my thing? And, and what actually, even more so, what is it that you enjoy most about comic books? When I became a true, true comic book fan, it came about when I was a little kid. My older brother, Paul, was a sports superstar. When he was in Little League, he was the fastest, hardest-thrown pitcher that they had ever seen. 
in basketball, nobody could play the game like he could. Football, no matter what it was. And I was the little brother who could not live in that shadow. I love baseball, but don't ask me to swing the bat. Um, I am not the sports guy. And when the teams were being chosen on the playground in fourth grade or third grade or fifth grade, I wasn't the last one to go, but I was sure towards back. And for me, the way out of all of that was to escape into the world filled with supermen and superheroes and adventures that would take me into outer space and below the ocean and all over the world. Man, I, I just I just went there. I went there, and that was, I think, the driving impetus for me. And my, my English teachers in my seventh and eighth grade recognized something, and, and they said, we believe it's these comic books that are sparking your imagination. You've got the best vocabulary in the class. You're the best creative writer in the class. You know, keep it up. And they, they tell some of the other students who would be laughing at me, you know, you guys might benefit if you started reading some of these things. So that was kind of my background launching me into this whole thing. And what do you think was your break into the industry? What was kind of the moment you said, you know what, I, I think I made it, and I think this will be my career? The first step took place when I was in college. I went to Indiana University in Bloomington. It was the early 1970s, and they had just started in response to the late 60s, early 70s atmosphere on campus, it started an experimental tourism department in the College of Arts and Sciences. The idea was that if you had a concept for a college course that had never been taught before, you could get the backing of a department on campus. We then would have the right to appear before a panel of deans and professors to pitch your course. If they approved it, you could then actually teach it on campus for up to three hours of credit. This was a spot I thought, well, here's a way, me with no money, no contacts, maybe I can get my foot in the comic book world in that door right now. So I designed what would become the world's first ever college accredited course on comic books, teaching comics as a true American art form, teaching comics as mirrors of our society that since the 1930s, every Wednesday, have reflected a changing American culture. And then importantly, the comic book superheroes are actually our contemporary American folklore. It's our modern-day mythology. And I got the back in the folklore department. And I went in and I pitched the course. And after being challenged and denied by the dean, I held my ground. And ultimately, um, the course was approved. And I began to teach this course. I actually made it into Ripley's Believe It or Not. I then remember what my mom said, that you can have the greatest creative ideas in the world, but if nobody knows about it, so what? you got to market yourself. So uh, when I learned that they were approving the course, I called United Press International and pretended to be an irate Indiana taxpayer that was screaming at this reporter that um, I heard there was a course on comic books being taught at Indiana University and that I was outraged they were using my taxpayer money to teach our kids comic books <laughs> and that this had to be some communist plot to subvert the youth of America. And I slammed down the phone. And then this guy, this reporter, did research and he found out there was a course and interviewed me. And that interview was picked up by virtually every newspaper in North America, a bunch of Europe. Um, 
I was suddenly being interviewed for magazines. I was invited onto radio and TV talk shows, and I never taught one comic book class that wasn't filled with TV cameras. Wow. About two, three weeks later, my phone rang. And it's this exuberant voice on the phone. It was Stan Lee. I, I was going to ask you how you met Stan. That's crazy. Now, th- this was my... This was not the first time I met Stan. Put an asterisk in that one, but it was the first time he was conscious of me. And um, he said, Mike, he goes, everywhere I look, I'm seeing you on TV. I'm listening to you on the radio. I'm reading back the newspapers. What you're doing is great for the whole comic book industry. How can I help you? Two, three hours later, my phone rang. Mr. Yuslin, um, my name is Saul Harrison. I'm the vice president of DC Comics in New York. We've been listening to you on the radio, reading about you in magazines. We think what you're doing is very innovative, uh, very clever, and we'd like to fly to New York and discuss ways we can work together. That was it. I landed in New York, and DC Comics offered me a job. I would work there summers, and then they would put me on retainer when I went back to IU. And it was from that that led me to meet everybody in network and gave me the opportunity to start writing comic books when I was still in college. I began writing The Shadow in the 1970s with Denny O'Neill. Then I graduated to um, a wild and wacky uh, interpretation of Beowulf for DC Comics. And then one day, Julie Schwartz, arguably the most important editor in the history of comic books, who was responsible for turning Batman back into his dark roots and was responsible for the birth of the Silver Age with the new Flash, Green Lantern, Adam Hawkman, and Justice League. He's walking down the hallway. He goes, hey, kid. I said, yes, Julie. He goes, I read your shadow script. I said, really? You did? He goes, yeah. He goes, it didn't stink. I go, oh, my God. Thank you so much, Julie. Wow, thank you. And he goes, how'd you like to take a shot at writing Batman? And at that moment, this dream I had since I was eight years old came true, and I started writing Batman comics along with my buddy Bob Rosakis. And I was still in school. I didn't so, know you um, actually wrote Batman comics. Oh, yeah, back in the 70s. And then I had a redux. Um, back in the, in the early 2000s, um, I wrote a hardback uh, Batman graphic novel. It's called Batman, Detective Number 27. And if you want to explore some of the themes of fear in Gotham City and how it's used by villains like the Scarecrow and Batman, these are a lot of themes that land up very, very prevalent in Batman Begins. Um, take a look. I'm very proud of the work. It's Batman Detective Number 27. Wow. And most recently, I wrote Batman Black and White that uh, came out last year. So uh, I'm still dabbling with Batman, and I'm still involved in the shadow. Um, in the last uh, two years, I wrote a shadow graphic novel for Dynamite. It's the first ever team up of the shadow and the Green Hornet called The Shadow Green Hornet Dark Knight. And I have a new graphic novel coming from Dynamite on uh, May 25th, and it's called Justice Incorporated. And it is the first time in 75 years that the shadow teams up with Doc Savage and the Avenger, who were the trinity of heroes, published originally by a group called Street and Smith. So... Uh, what would you consider to date is your most successful kind of piece of art? I mean, I know, and I, I really want to talk about your time as a movie producer, but so including all of that, writing, producing, what was the thing that uh, you would dub kind of the most successful? In, my, in comic book world? Um, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a few things I'm very, very proud of. One, of course, is uh, Batman Detective number 27. 
Mm. I took my love of history, my love of Batman and comics, and merged them. And it is an adventure of Bruce Wayne, set in primarily 1939, uh, in which you meet people like Sigmund Freud, Babe Ruth. Um, the story involves Abraham Lincoln, FDR. And uh, so I got to combine history and real people with fictional characters, and I loved every minute of it. Um, there was another comic book I wrote that was the sickest thing I've ever written in my life. Hmm. It was for an issue of Unexpected Comics, and it was an Easter story called Hopping Down the Bunny Trail about a vampire Easter bunny that's pissed off because all the kids keep getting these chocolate Easter bunnies and biting their heads off, and he decides to turn about at fair play. It's so sick, you won't believe it. But <laughs> Sounds go like online, it. Go online, and you will find now it's been named one of the nine best horror comics of all time, one of the scariest comic books of all time, one of the most disturbing comic books of all time, and um, the best Easter story of all time. <laughs> but I think I gave a lot of kids in that generation nightmares for many, many years and scarred them. Wow. Yeah, I would. I was going to say, I, I don't know if that's something I would show my kids, but hey, you never know. Mm -hmm. As long as your kid is not under 21, you can, you can show it. Oh, there you go. Okay, good. <laughs> now we'll take a quick break for our sponsor, lynda.com. lynda.com is the online learning platform with over 3,000 on-demand video courses to help you strengthen your business, technology, and creative skills. For a free 10-day trial, visit lynda.com slash smartpeople. That's L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash smart people lynda.com is for problem solvers for the curious for people who want to make things happen maybe you want to master excel learn negotiation tactics build a website or boost your photoshop skills go to lynda.com and feed your curious mind some of the courses i recommend and i've spoken about them in the past are going paperless start to finish iPhone and iPad security fundamentals. We all got to keep those things secure and growth hacking fundamentals. With a lynda.com membership, you can watch and learn from top experts, stream thousands of video courses on demand, or download tutorials and watch them on the go. Your lynda.com membership will give you unlimited access to training on hundreds of topics, all for one flat rate. Whether you're looking to become an industry expert, you're passionate about a hobby, or you just want to learn something new, I want you to visit lynda.com slash smart people and sign up for your free 10-day trial. That's right, it's free. That's l-y-n-d-a dot com slash smart people. Now back to the show. So I have to say, and not being a, a huge comic book buff myself, although um, obviously appreciating the art, I will say that what brought it to to my world is this resurgence of comic books being made into movies. How do you feel about kind of that transition? Because it obviously changes a lot of the, the core of what a comic is. Well, I, first of all, I'm honored that there have been a number of websites that have dubbed me the godfather of comic book movies. When I first saw the Batman TV show, January 1966, I couldn't wait for it to come on the air. But as a hardcore Batman fan, fanboy who understood the full history of Batman and how Bob Kane and Bill Sinder had created him as a creature of the night, stalking criminals from the shadows, 
when it came on the air, I was um, enthused and chagrined at the same time. Because while the car was cool, it was in color, um, at the same time, I realized the entire world was laughing at Batman. They were treating him as a joke. And that just killed me. Because you have to take this in the context of the times. In, in 66, this was the one and only interpretation of Batman known worldwide. That was it. And it was that night that I was watching this, and I made a vow. I made a vow like Bruce Wayne made a vow when he was a kid. Although my parents were safe upstairs in the kitchen. <laughs> um, I vowed that somehow... Someday, I would find a way to show the world the true Batman, that creature of the night. And I would figure out how to erase from the collective consciousness of the world culture these three little words, pow, zap, and wham. It was that moment that set me on what will turn out to be my life's work. When I was in my 20s, I bought the rights to Batman from DC Comics with my partner, Ben Melnicker. I quit my job. At a time when my wife was 9.1 months pregnant, we were building our first house, gave up all security, all the benefits, all the dental plans, and we rolled the dice. With Batman in my back pocket, I went out to Hollywood to keep figuring, oh, this is going to be a breeze. Everybody's going to line up my doorstep there. How could they not? I'll see the potential for sequels and animation and toys and games. And I was then turned down by every studio in Hollywood, and that, sir, is an understatement. They told me it was the worst idea they ever heard. They said I was crazy. You can't do serious comic book movies. You can't do dark superheroes. For God's sake, you can't make a movie out of an old television series. That's never been done. And what happened to me then was it took 10 years from the time I acquired the rights to Batman it took 10 years before we were able to get the first movie made with Tim Burton, uh, starring Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson. Wow. And that 10 years of everybody telling you you suck, that your ideas suck, and it tests your metal. You've got to look deep inside yourself and go, okay, is the whole world right and I'm just going to discover it, or do I really truly believe in this? Do I believe in myself? And I kept coming up with a latter answer and managed to hang on fairly by my fingertips until we were able to get the movie made. And it wound up changing the comic book industry. It changed Hollywood and began the spawn of comic book movies and TV show and animation that was to follow. Yeah, um, you've got to give massive credit um, to Superman and the, the phenomenal Dick Donner for the first two Superman movies. But Nobody in society or Hollywood thought that any other comic book property from any company had any value whatsoever, that, that, that Superman was the only one capable of being made into a big-budget movie blockbuster. Right. And, and even in those movies, if you'll note, by the time Clark Kent gets Metropolis and appears as Superman, the tone of the piece completely switches, and it's very light and fluffy. Um, Batman was not going to be that way. It was going to be dark. It was going to be serious. And um, I have been so thrilled and fortunate to work with a few geniuses over these years. People like Tim Burton. 
that was a revolutionary movie. Nothing like that had ever been done before. Everything changed. And to this day, you go to any comic book or genre movie, and as far as I'm concerned, you can still see the influence of Tim Burton's vision from Batman 89. You can still see another genius by friend Anton Hirsch, who was our production designer, designed Gotham City and the Batmobile and the whole look of the picture. You can still see the influence of Anton's design work through every picture. You can still hear the influence of Danny Elfman's score in every picture of this type. And then years and years later, being lucky enough and fortunate enough to once again be involved with a genius in the form of Christopher Nolan, who restored the darkness and dignity to Batman on screen and raised the bar not only for Batman but for every comic book movie because when you walk out of one of Chris's comic book films, you don't have to say anymore, gee, that was a great comic book movie. You cannot say that was a great film. And again, everything changed. Yeah. Guys like Chris, guys like Tim Burton, they deserve all the accolades. They deserve all the credit. Wow. I mean, I have to say, so the, the 1989 Batman, I was born in 1983, and it was a... It was one of those things that defined my childhood. I wasn't allowed to watch it when it first came out, but I'd say by about the time I was nine or so, so very early 90s, I remember, I still remember watching it and thinking not only how amazing it was, but being, I don't want to say disturbed, but I mean, it, it was dark. I re- it had a lasting impression. I still remember it. So just a really incredible movie and congratulations on that. Well, I can't tell you how much your words mean to me. I, it, it, your your words and words of other uh, fans, people who were kids back then, people who were fathers and shared the experience with their kids or grandfathers who ex- shared that experience with their grandchildren, kids who remember now their dads and grand- grandpas who are gone, uh, who bonded over watching that film together. It kind of validates my career, and it validates the 10 years of living hell that I had to endure while everybody said I was crazy. Yes. And, um, it, it, it's, it's great. I appreciate your comment. Absolutely. Well, and you know what else is really incredible to hear is um, we've interviewed at this point about 200 people on the show, and I will say probably the number one thing I've heard, that the most uh, common thing I've heard is it takes 10 years to become an overnight success. And why... 10 years is the number. I don't know. But to hear it was 10 years from when you bought the rights to when you made the movie is just, it is so, uh, it's just so in line with what we've heard. And I, and you have to persevere through that time. You do. And I have developed a speech mentality. What I've learned in life is I can accomplish everything I truly want to, but the way my life works, I'm only going to do it the longest, hardest possible way. So I gear myself up without ever doubting it, but I gear myself up for the long speech and the time in the foxhole. Yeah. It doesn't matter what projects you're talking about. Let me, I'll mention a couple of other uh, movies that I've been involved in over the years. National Treasure, the process of that took about 10 years. Constantine took around 10 years. So, um, you know, it's not like uh, Batman came out, my life changed, which it did dramatically but it didn't make the process any quicker for other things. 
So I, I really want to know, and maybe, you know, I don't know if you can tell me this or if you feel comfortable, but how much did you buy the rights to Batman for? Because that now, looking back, seems insane. Well, actually, I can't discuss the specifics of it. Okay. But I wouldn't want to take anything away from the imagination of you guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the picture. Maybe you're picturing a cave filled with the treasures of Alibaba in the 40s. Something. Uh, or a Scrooge McDuck's money bin, but um, it was not cheap. Yeah, I can't imagine. Well, and then I, I have to, I really have to ask you about The Dark Knight. Because as much of an impact as Batman 89 had on me, and I, I still might say that 89 was the best just because it was original, it was different from what we'd seen, The Dark Knight blew me away i mean talk the acting was incredible what was that like i mean tell us about what it's like producing a movie like the dark knight well it has to begin with batman begins you know when people say well what's your favorite uh chris nolan batman movie there's no separation for me it is one movie in three acts batman begins the dark knight and the dark knight rises it's one story interlocking the structure of it, the setups for every payoff, the payoff for every setup. It, it's, it's like it was woven and then a bow put on each thing. Um, let me start with the end and then I'll go back to the beginning. Um, we were sitting in a huge IMAX theater, me and my wife and about six other people, and it was the first time um, that we were being shown the completed Dark Knight Rides. And at the end of that movie, my wife turns to me and she sees there are just tears streaming down my face. And she says, are you all right, Michael? And I said to her, yeah. I go, but thanks to Chris, this is my legacy that I'm seeing here. This is my epitaph. I understand that. And she then tapped me on the knee and said, okay, then. Now, what do you want to be when you grow up? A very fitting moment for that and summarizing the journey. But the journey in the beginning deals with that genius coming in who had a love for this character, a passion for this character, an understanding for this character. Then as a filmmaker who had a vision for this film and knew how to execute that vision. And if you step back and consider the challenges that he faced they were absolutely enormous because he had to restore the darkness and dignity to that. Mm. And he was going to come at it years later from almost the polar opposite way that Tim Burton did, where Tim needed to build Gotham City because he said, nobody's ever seen a serious comic book superhero movie before. So the most essential thing is from the opening frames they must first believe in Gotham City. It's the third most important character in this movie. If they don't believe in Gotham City, they will never accept the guy getting dressed up as a bat fighting a guy like the Joker. That's how essential it was. Mm. And five square city blocks of Gotham City were built on the back lot of Pinewood. It was absolutely incredible. My partner, Ben Melnicker, used to run MGM. All divisions reported to him. It's Tiffany Bay. Ben put together the deal for the movie Ben-Hur, Charlton Heston. And then turned to me and said, Michael, I never thought in my life I would see sets more elaborate than Ben-Hur's, but this has a beat. Coming into it, though, 
from the point of Chris years later, everything had changed. The world had changed. For Tim Burton, it was a black versus white world of good versus evil. That comic book world, if you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. The Joker in the comic books leading into the late 80s was the Clown Prince of Crime. But now, the world had become very gray. It was more about order versus chaos, and the Joker in the comics was much more the homicidal maniac. So Chris wanted to come at it as realistically as possible. So Gotham City was not going to be a build. He wanted you to believe in Gotham City. And he took Chicago, realizing that if you take just a couple of iconic buildings out of the skyline of Chicago, most people around the world would not be able to recognize the city, mm-hmm. what it is. And then you can suspect your disbelief. Had he chosen New York, the second you saw Times Square or the Statue of Liberty, you would ah, it's New York, and it breaks the suspension of disbelief. So right, right there, there's genius at work. He convinced us that Bruce Wayne was real, that in the world we live in, he could be a traumatized, troubled young man on a journey through life, almost like Lost Horizon, actually. And then working with Christian Bale, who just nails Bruce Wayne for every generation of Batman fan. It did believe in Bruce Wayne. The next challenge was, how did he make the Joker real? Well, again, genius at work. He had us convinced the Joker was a modern-day terrorist, an almost idle maniac who places no value whatsoever on life, not man, woman, child, or his own. And it was scary. We were all scared. And working with Keith Ledger, they truly crafted a performance of a lifetime. Then Chris had to deal with maybe the biggest challenge of all, which is how does he convince the world, the audiences, that all this crazy technology could be real? So he hired Morgan Freeman to tell you it was real. Mm. And by God, if Morgan Freeman says it, it's got to be true. So um, it, it was an incredible incredible experience. Um, plus, he's one of the nicest people you can imagine. Comes to the set every day in a tie-in jacket, bringing a bit of golden age of Hollywood class to the set, setting a standard for everybody. Um, it, it was absolutely incredible, and it is almost shocking to me that as we are talking right now in 2015, this is the 10th anniversary of the Dark Knight trilogy. What? I can't believe it. Wow. Batman begins... 2005. Wow. That, that is, looking back, it's pretty insane. And of course, I mean, you know, the job, the, the Joker in that movie, Heath Ledger, it will forever stick in any movie watcher's mind. It was, it absolutely was the performance of a lifetime. And when you start to think, man, you know, there's no Batman, there's no character that's ever gonna, you know, really have that much of an impact on a movie... Then comes Bane, and talk about one of another one of the most amazing, um, you know, villains of all time. I, I just, how do you guys, how do you come up with these people? How do you portray them so amazingly? I don't get it. Again, you've got to give the credit where credit is due, and that's Chris Nolan, because he had so explored, as far as I'm concerned, the villains from the psychological point of view and the psychologically damaged point of view then to bring in a force of physical power uh, into it and bring it in a way that just felt real and dangerous and scary and 
relevant to the world in which we live. You know, one of the most amazing things in the whole process on the Dark Knight trilogy was the way that so many critics and reviewers and people have called it the most important post-9-11 movies made. And there's such great truth to that. There really is. Uh, thematically, what he dealt with there was so important. Well, let's go to the Dark Knight. I've lectured at probably 200 universities uh, over these years. And everywhere I go doing Q&A, when I ask people about the Dark Knight, everybody talks about the same thing. When they are on the ship and they have to make a choice, a moral choice, as to do you press the button and blow up the other guy, save yourself, or do you not? And people reveal that in the darkness of the theater, each of them made their own quiet moral choice and learned what happens when you have to make this choice, and the choice is bad and worse. For a comic book movie, a superhero movie, to deal that heavily with such important themes that resonate so much to a person's form, absolutely incredible. Yeah. And, uh, and that's part of the magic of it as far as I'm concerned. And now a quick word from this week's sponsor. Igloo is an intranet you'll actually like. It's a cloud platform that can help you do your best work, share files, blog updates, coordinate calendars, and manage projects. It's easy to use and easy to configure, even for the most non-technical of users. Best of all, it's built using responsive design, which means that everything that you can do at your desk, you can now do on the go on your phone or tablet. The responsive design is meant to look great on all your devices. Whether you're a large enterprise stuck using SharePoint or a fast-growing business overwhelmed by apps, create an intranet that matches your brand's look and feel, simplifies how you work, and is accessible on your phone. Sign up now and try it out for free at igloosoftware.com slash smartpeople. That's igloosoftware.com slash smartpeople and invite up to 10 of your favorite coworkers to try it out with you. I don't know about you guys, but I absolutely hate email. I think it's broken, and I think it's the least productive thing about my day. Luckily, Chris and I have actually been using Igloo to share files with each other and coordinate across tasks. We use it for task management. We're able to say, okay, we've got these things coming up on these dates and put them on the calendar. It's been a fantastic tool for us at Smart People Podcast. You should give it a try, too. Head over to igloosoftware.com slash smart people and try it for free with up to 10 of your favorite coworkers. And now back to the show. Well, I know we don't have much more time with you, but you have, you're working on right now the reason for kind of the background noise, an incredible new project uh, with the Smithsonian Institution and Stan Lee. And it's a free open online course about the rise of the superheroes. It's a, it's really sounds new and and that everyone would at least want to know something about it comic book fans or not could you tell us a little bit about what you're doing with this project this course is important let me explain what i mean by that and of course it is free it is free i grew up in the 50s and 60s outside new york city and and being the ardent comic book fan would beg my mom and dad to take me to the office of species and they'll have their old tours I wound up starting to write for what were fandoms in the days before there was an internet and do interviews with comic book company executives, editors. I learned that 
most of the creators, writers and artists and editors from the golden age to the silver age of comics all lived in and around New York City. They lived in New Jersey. And so many times my folks gave up their weekends and would take me to these people's homes where I would interview them, even when I was 13, 14, 15, and give me the story firsthand of how the industry started, how the company started, how the superheroes were born and evolved. And in almost every case, these largely with men, there were a few women, were so denigrated and degraded by society back then for working in comic books, when comic books were thought to have uh, portrayed by Dr. Frederick Wortham in his book, Seduction of the Innocent, portrayed as the post-World War II specific cause for the rise of juvenile delinquency in America, and that they were works of the devil. There were comic book burnings in different cities in America at the time. It was a very, very different time, a dark age for comics. And, and I met all of these guys. And first of all, we, we must establish an official American recognition of the comic book as a legitimate American art form as indigenous to this country is jazz, as that reflector of a changing American culture over the decades and with the superheroes as our modern-day mythology. We must do that. And now, through the auspices of the Smithsonian Institution, this is what is happening. And that's why it's so important. Um, it's important to do this for the legitimacy of the comic book and to right the wrongs done to all the creators all those years. Look at how far we've come. Um, works of original art and comic books are hanging in the Louvre, at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, in universities, in galleries. Comic books that were so denigrated are now the basis for big blockbuster movies all around the world that are crossing borders and cultures. It's by superheroes and being embraced by foreign cultures. It's the basis for hit TV series, for great animation, for video games. Comic books are impacting the culture in other ways, like fashion. It's incredible. You know, so as the fanboy who had to live through these eras, to see this kind of respect and acknowledgement brought to the comics and the creators, all I can say to all of us is we win. After all these years, we win. And this course is meant to provide the background, the history, in its context um, of how the comic book began, what its roots were, what superheroes were, how they were born and evolved, their influences from Egyptian, Greek, Roman, <clears throat> Norse gods, and mythological uh, heroes from Beowulf and Odysseus uh, all the way on up. And then why comic books? What was it? What was going on in America? Well, it was a depression, and then it was a war, a need for cheap entertainment and escapist entertainment. World War II, the rise of the superhero, patriotic superheroes, how soldiers became the number two market for comic books, the end of the golden age when the war ended, and there was no longer a societal great need for superheroes, how the comic books dealt with that by starting romance comics, war, western, science fiction, and of course crime and horror comics, which would lead us into the dark ages of seduction of the innocent and the emergence of the comics code authority. And then the regeneration of the superhero, the rebirth of comics in a silver age, 
that led into Stan Lee turning the world of comics on its head in a revolutionary way starting in 1961 with the Marvel Age of Comics and talking about how the artists, how, how everybody was an important part of this whole process and bringing it to this day when comic books are heralded rather than scorned. So it, and, and don't let me make you think this is just like a heavy academic thing. This is going to be fun. It's a fun journey, a fun adventure. There's going to be a lot of interactive assignments to pace yourself through the course. It's a five-week course, and it's taught by three professors. It's myself, my son David, representing the newest generation of comic book fans in a digital age, in an age of alternative press, of independent press, graphic novels, motion comics, uh, just so many different things. And the third professor is Professor Stan Lee, and that is absolutely amazing. You've got to understand the following. Stan is the last one standing from the beginning of Marvel. He was there in 39. He was there from beginning to end, and he's the last one. And to be able to find out from him what it was like, what they were thinking, what they were doing, what the routine was like, um, is a fascinating, important glimpse into the true story, the secret origin of the industry and the characters that we all love so much. Wow. And like I said, I'm not even a huge comic book fan, but I, I can't wait for this course, especially I didn't know Stan Lee was part of it. So you, your son, Stan Lee, perhaps the most uh, you know comic book knowledge in one place ever um, do you know the details or specifics on how people can take the course, when it will be up, where it will be up, those things? We're going to start in early May. And now actually, they put a trailer out. It's on YouTube. Um, you can find it if you kind of uh, Google Smithsonian Institution, comic books, Stanley, Eastland, whatever. Yeah, we'll you'll, link you'll to up. it. Yeah, yeah you'll, you'll find the trailer for it. It gives you some specifics. Or you can go to the Smithsonian Institution website. But um, again, it, it's free. It's self-paced. There's a lot of exciting videos. And best of all, like a fanboy's dream come true, I was taken down, down, down deep into the recesses of the Smithsonian Institution to unlock what they had in their archives pertaining to comic books and original art and artifacts from the 30s on up. And, um, God, it was so much fun for me. Um, and, and I don't want to give too much away, but I found one piece of incredible original art, and I knew something the Smithsonian experts, the curators, didn't even know. And that is when you're dealing with comic book original art, it's important you check the back because it's on the backs that so many of the artists used to do sketches, oh my preliminary gosh. drawings. Sometimes, like, naked drawings of your characters. You never know what you might find there. And I found one early piece of original art on Superman and flipped it over and found a very, very interesting, beautifully inked picture. But I'm not going to tell you what it is. Ah. I'll save it for a surprise in the course. That's amazing. That's amazing. And real quick, I know you got to go. What uh, What's the most expensive, or I guess I would say most valuable comic book out there now? And perhaps it's at the Smithsonian. Well, the, the two most expensive comic books right now are Action Comics number one, 
and Detective Comics number 27, which, of course, introduced Batman. Mm. Uh, Action 1, I think, went for about 3.2 million comics. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's my brain. $3.2 <laughs> million. Uh, Metropolis Comics in New York auctioned off one, and I think it was maybe Heritage Comics, uh, Heritage Auctions that um, did the other auction. Wow. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's incredible. I was, by the way, at the first comic book auction ever held, which was at that first Comic-Con in New York City in 1964, and the first item that went up for bid was Action Comics number one, a 10-cent comic book. And as I sat there, I watched that 10-cent comic book be auctioned off for the unheard-of price of $40. What? You could have bought it for $40. I could have bought it for 41 <laughs> Um but I didn't care about action number one when I was 13. I was more interested in Batman number one, which was the second item up for a bid. And I was there with my partner in crime, uh, one of my best friends, Bobby Klein, and we had pooled our money. And between the two of us, we had $22.50. And we thought, well, if action one went for 40, Batman number one will probably go for about 20, so we should be able to get that. Well, the bidding started, and it started to escalate pretty quickly, and we got worried. So I said, don't let them close this auction. i got to go find my dad. I'll be right back. I found my dad in the hotel, and I quickly told him what was going on and begged him for more money. Very hesitantly, my father gave me another $5 with a warning. He said, Michael, these men are trying to take advantage of a kid. He said, that's a 10-cent comic book that they're, they want to sell you for like $25. He said that, that they're taking advantage of a child. You shouldn't let them do that. But he gave me the five. Went back, and now we had $27.50. Batman number one was sold for $29. No. Oh, my God. Oh. Oh, that hurts me. Many, 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 many decades later, I am still in agony and occasionally wake up screaming thinking about it. Oh, that's one of the best stories I've ever heard. I mean, I was literally on the edge of my seat, but I, I'm sorry. That's all I can say is I'm sorry. <laughs> well, Chris, if, you, if you'd like to hear more stories like this and my escapades through life, do check out my book, The Boys Who Love Batman. I think you'll get a real kick out of it. And my goal is anybody reading it, hopefully will say, well, wait a minute, this story, this is not about Houston. This is about me. This is my story. And, and I'm hoping that my story is really very similar to the stories of all of fanboys and fangirls who just love this stuff. Absolutely. And have had very, very specific impacts throughout their lives and their families and their friends from their experience with comic books and comic book movies and things like that. Absolutely. Well, Michael, thank you so much for being on the show. If you could leave uh, a word of wisdom uh, for for our listeners, what um, what would you tell your twenty year old self? And it can be a quick one liner if you have one. If you get up off the couch and maintain a high level for frustration. You can make your dreams come true, Michael. I swear it. Well, you must have told your 20-year-old self that because you did make your dreams come happen. You're, you're oh, an... Chris, I'm here at the Smithsonian working with Stan Lee. Like, oh, my God. I know. <laughs> I can't believe it. And and I got to be honest with you. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. This is one of my favorite uh, conversations we've ever had. 
And I, I, I was shocked by it just because, you know, I'm not a huge comic book fan, but you don't need to be. And so we will absolutely link to your book, which I am going to go ahead and purchase. We'll link to the YouTube video and any other material on this course, uh, which sounds so interesting. Michael, thank you so much for being so generous with your time in the middle of a busy workday. I can't tell you how much we appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Any chance, any chance I have to geek out with a fellow fan, I yes, love it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Have a blast at the Smithsonian and tell Stan we said hello. <laughs> I promise. All Take right. Care. Thank you. Welcome back. I hope you guys enjoyed that episode with Michael Uslin. Pretty cool stuff to think that he is essentially the reason behind all of the Batman movies happening. So incredible, such a big piece of my childhood, and I know Chris's as well. I was really excited to have him on the show today, and hopefully you guys learned a lot from him. As he mentioned in the episode, him and Stan Lee worked on putting together a course with the Smithsonian called The Rise of Superheroes and Their Impact on Pop Culture. You can currently sign up for free, and just a few of the things you'll learn in the class are the history and origins of the first superheroes in comic books, how to apply historical examples to create superheroes for the present day, and the evolution of American society from the Depression today as seen through the lens of the comic book genre. It's absolutely fascinating stuff and fun stuff, too. Michael also has a book that you can pick up called The Boy Who Loved Batman. It's available on Amazon, and if you're going to purchase it through Amazon, don't forget to use the Smart People Podcast Amazon banner over at smartpeoplepodcast.com, or you can just use the link smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. Hope everybody had a fantastic Memorial Day weekend. We've got a lot of really neat episodes coming up, and we will see you guys next week. A big thank you to Igloo for sponsoring this week's episode of Smart People Podcast. Igloo is an intranet you'll actually like. It gives you the flexibility to get your work done how you want, where you want, and on whatever device you want. It's built with easy-to-use apps like file sharing, calendars, social news feeds, and task management. Igloo is the cloud platform that can help you do your best work. Get your free trial today at igloosoftware.com smartpeople and invite up to 10 of your favorite coworkers. workers